Today's scripture reading is from Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works Praise her in the gates. This is the reading of God's word. Please be seated. So last week we covered the good man. And as I shared, we're going to be talking about the excellent woman. Many women, Christian women, have lived under the foreboding shadow of Proverbs 31. And if you listen to that passage carefully, you know that this woman is incredibly gifted, highly spiritual, incredibly large capacity in terms of their ability to do things as a woman. She really conquers the world, you might say. And this excellent woman has the qualities of Mary, the mother of Jesus, Martha Stewart, Florence Nightingale, Madame Curie, and many, many others, all wrapped up in one person. And so here's the thing. Is the Bible telling you women, this is who you need to be? I mean, listening to that, that just seems oppressive. It seems oppressive. I'm a guy and I feel oppressed hearing that, let alone listening to the Bible speak to women. But note that this passage is meant to be an ideal. And while you're supposed to aspire, perhaps, to some quality of this ideal, the recognition is that you won't be able to achieve it. It's not attainable, not perfectly. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
And that's an incredibly difficult passage to hear from Jesus, as a Christian especially. It's sort of the same vein. It's this ideal that is actually more than an ideal. It's intended to be how if life were to be a place without sin, if you were to be the person who truly uh, is under the, the realm and rulership and authority of Christ perfectly, you'd be this person. You'd be the perfect person. But is that even possible? Should we obtain this? What should we do with this passage? I'd like to answer this question by looking at three points from Proverbs 31. First, Proverbs 31 speaks of the qualities of an excellent woman. Second, it speaks of the complement of an excellent woman. And then third, the completeness of an excellent woman. First, the qualities of an excellent woman. To get a a bit of a background on this passage, I want to remind you and show you actually that this passage in in Hebrew is what's known as an acrostic. An acrostic has different letters in the front of each verse or word to symbolize something greater than itself. So essentially the Hebrew alphabet for us would be A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all the way down to Z. And each verse begins with each letter, meaning that this is meant to be a poem. It's artistic. So we're not talking about a prescriptive essay on what it means to be an excellent woman. Rather, it's an artistic, poetic picture meant to give us a semblance or a sort of an image of what God intends for women to be. It's also meant to be something that qualitatively women can possess to some extent. And when I was studying this passage, I saw six overarching essential characteristics. We just don't have time for all six. So what I'm going to do is mention three today. And then if if you can recall, we um, in the beginning of the year, we had a pancake breakfast for men and then sort of a talk for women. We're going to repeat that in the fall. And uh For the men, we'll continue on what I was sharing on this pastime. And then for the women, I'll mention the last three characteristics. So for today, we're only going to focus on three out of the six. And so the first characteristic that this passage presents to us is this idea of strong excellence. The word excellent, if you look at verse 10, is literally the word strong. And so I just combined them together. And it has the idea of a warrior, It's meant also for someone who perhaps is wealthy, virtuous. And so there's a reason why the ESV uses the word excellent, but other versions have all different words for this particular Hebrew word because it's meant to be all-encompassing. Like This woman just is absolutely excellent in everything she does. I mean, she is great. She is super strong, and hence the phrase strong excellence. And then verse 10 asks a rhetorical question. Who can find this person? It's meant to show us, again, that this woman is an ideal. Now, is she a mythological creature? Is she an Amazonian warrior? Is it possible to find this person in our world, in this room? She's not Amazonian in her strength, but she is powerful in her character, in her integrity, in her pursuit of God. And then you see in verse 25, 
the Proverbs writer describes her this way, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. The time to come refers specifically to death. And so with death comes suffering, trial, all of these challenges to life, meaning that as she faces such times, she's able to persist and to have faith and to be strong, even when it is most hard, most difficult. And she acts and moves to protect those whom she loves. This past week, I heard from one of our gospel partners, George Neiman, who's in uh, Goma, in the DRC. And we've mentioned this, for those of you who've been with us numerous times, the DRC is an incredibly dangerous place in Africa for many different reasons. Within the DRC, Goma is the worst of the DRC. And then within Goma, this place called Luhanga is the worst within Goma, within the DRC. And he was visiting with uh, Eric, who's their uh, regional coordinator, and then Bindu, who's also oversees the community. He's the community-based leader. So three men, and they went to this village. And this village is comprised mostly of women and children and orphans. A lot of the men are either fighting or have been killed. So a lot of women. And this place is so dangerous because there's rebels and military forces, government forces coming, and they're constantly fighting. And then so the women have to scatter into the, the bush, into the, uh, the mountainous areas to escape all of these dangers. Well, here are these three men. They go into the community, and then after their stay for about a few weeks, they come out, and they're heading off to what Africans call the tar road, which is an asphalt road, our typical road, because most roads in that area are dirt roads. And on this tar road is this most dangerous place, primarily because that's where kidnappings happen. That's where rebel forces and government forces often fight. And so kidnappings, murders, assaults, rapes, all sorts of terrible things happen on this tar road. So these three men leaving the village, they're heading towards the tar road, and these women, Christian women, about 10 of them say, we're going to escort you. And George is like, no, you, you, you take care of yourself. We're, we'll be fine. And they say, no, it's dangerous there. You need us. And so they're, you know, they're thinking, we're three men. And here are these women, these 10 women, they don't have weapons. They're not strong physically, but they have this mindset of, we're going to protect you. And he was so struck by the idea that these 10 women who are not that strong physically, but their strength lies in their character. And most of all, in their faith, in their God. And that's the thing about, I think, when you consider so many women, Christian women in our world, so oftentimes they stand in the gap when men are missing or have abandoned the post, you might say, of families. And so when I first went to South Africa in 2005 with our team, and we went to speak, at, I, we went to a church small church, and I was speaking, and it was primarily, I would say, 99% women and children. There were no men. The reason why there were no men is because most of them would go to Johannesburg to work in the mines, and then they would have extramarital affairs due to that contract HIV AIDS, bring it back to their home, have 
relationships with their wife, and then their wife would get HIV, and then they would both die, which led to this incredibly terrible cycle of death and disease and destruction, all due to men, husbands, abandoning the post. And here you have these women who are gathering together and raising up their children, feeding them at great cost by themselves and doing so because husbands had left, had abandoned their families. This is the, the realities of our world is so many women are courageous. I'm not saying there aren't any godly men who are courageous, but in our broken world, and especially in a world confused by gender, by roles, by the, the family structures disintegrating, primarily women have stood in the gap so often. And so you can see why verses like verse 17 says this about an excellent woman. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arm strong. She's not lifting weights here and bench pressing and doing a bunch of curls to make her arms strong. The point of it is that actually when it says she dresses herself with strength, it literally says she girds up her loins. And that phrase is used in the Bible to refer to men who would go to war because they would wear tunics. And when they were preparing for battle, they would uh, pull up their tunic and tie it with a rope or some sort of um, some sort of strap that kept their tunic up so that they could actually run in battle. And so clearly this is a, a battle framework for the woman is that she dresses herself. She gets ready for battle and makes her arms strong. Now, what does that mean? Meaning she prepares for difficulty, trials, challenge. She girds up her loins. How does a woman do that when it's not talking necessarily about physical battle? In scripture, that's referring mostly to spiritual battle. And so one thing is for certain is that there are so many women, more than I would say so often than men, who gird up their loins spiritually for battle in their closets in prayer, on their knees, interceding. I know some of you, many of us, are the product of the Lord listening by his grace to the prayers of mothers who have prayed for you and me. And so much battle happens because of mothers and wives and women who are praying and inter interceding for loved ones. You know, nations rise and fall because they believe in a God who is powerful. Because God is the warrior. It's not that these women who are walking, they, like I said, they're, they have weapons, they have guns, or they have, they're physically strong, but they just believe in a God who is strong, who is a warrior, who is able to destroy whole nations and kings and rulers. And so those prayers that so many of you women, sisters, and some of your mothers and grandmothers have prayed over generations, the legacies that have been created due to the tears that have been spilt on behalf of others. Do not ever underestimate that power. It is what defines truly one huge quality of the strength of a woman. So if you think to yourself, well, what, what, what can I do? No, what can I do? 
you're not understanding fully the power of our God. That when you, dear sister, ladies, when you pray, God hears. And when he hears, he does something incredible. Far more than any other amount of money or physical strength, anything that you provide. It just cannot compare. Second, a second quality is diligent ingenuity. Look at verses 13 through 19. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it with the fruit of her hands. She plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength, makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. I mean, this is a superwoman. I mean, she, to give you an idea, flax, uh, in our modern era, very few people actually make their food from the plant, from the ground, from the animal. We go to a supermarket and we go and buy food. Well, in biblical times, that wasn't the case. I think you all know that. And so therefore, any food they had on the table had to be labored over. Flax was planted, then it was, you know, with the whole process of planting, you pull it by the root, which was a challenge in and of itself. Then you soaked it, you dried it, you put it on a roof, it dried, and then you had to prepare it in a particular way for it to be eaten. That's just one thing. Then there's wool. Wool is used for clothing. Wool you get from sheep. So if you've ever watched, just go to YouTube and watch the effort it takes to shear a sheep. And this woman shears the sheep. You have to weigh it. You have to wash it. You have to comb it. And then you have to take that, once that wool comes, and you have to create it into clothing or to a blanket or to whatever it might be. Now she's doing all of this on top of selling merchandise, which is profitable. And I, that's one of the qualities I'm not addressing fully, you know, because I know some of you are in the working force and this woman is there too. She's in the marketplace. She's actually selling and she's actually a really successful business person. So there's a lot that this person is doing all at the same time. And because of that, look at what it says in verse 18. Her lamp does not go out at night. She doesn't sleep. I mean, how can you? How can you sleep when you're selling, you're, you're making everything from scratch, and you're doing it excellently? I mean, it's all coming together. On top of that, you know what else she's doing? She's planting and harvesting vineyards. Just go to Napa and Sonoma and talk to a, you know, a vintner, and you realize, wow, that's hard work. That's just one job out of all the things she's doing. Now you understand why she is who she is and why it's so oppressive, perhaps, in a sense. So why is she doing this? Because she's taking care of her family. She wants to help provide for them, and it's a heavy burden, and she has to do all sorts of things. She has to sacrifice her own comfort for the comfort of others. She puts her family's needs before her own, and one big quality is she is diligent. She doesn't give up. She persists. She comes up with ideas. And so this arduous, regular, faithful labor is something that she is doing. I know some of you, this is you. Some of you have 
mothers who are like this. And who they do it to an excellent degree. And it's not so easy. But I think we have to keep that in mind that this is, this is hard. This is very difficult. Next is, this person is a perseverant homemaker. Verses 21 through 22. She is not afraid of snow for her household. For all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Purple and fine linen, it's expensive clothing. So it's like top quality clothing. And then verses 27 through 28. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Much is is said by the phrase, she is not afraid. She is not afraid of snow. You know, snow is very rare in this part of the world. So when snow came, people were afraid. What do you do with this cold weather? She's not afraid. All sorts of uh, challenges come her way unexpected, and she's able to face it. Now, another thing is she's excellent in the marketplace. She dresses her own children with luxury by the work of her own hands. This, again, lifting the ideals, the loftiness of what this woman is. It's something to keep in mind. On top of this, there is the compliment of an excellent woman, not just the qualities, but the compliment. And that word compliment does not have the letter I in it. It's not a, oh, you are excellent, but rather there's someone alongside you, the compliment. And I think after such an overview, many of you ladies, women, might be tempted to feel deficient, defeated perhaps. And perhaps a husband or a man might think, an excellent wife, who can find this person? Tell me. But this is where the compliment of an excellent woman comes in. Men, if you are married, if you have a wife, you need to see the parts where Proverbs 31 speaks to you. This is not just a passage for women, but it's a passage for men. You are the compliment of an excellent woman. Proverbs 31 is not license for laziness. It's not, because I think that's something that you might think, a woman might think, or a man might think. Reading this, you say, what is the guy doing? I mean, she's doing all the work. (laughs) She's not only working at home, she's working in the marketplace and she's providing everything. So what is the guy, what is this guy doing? Proverbs 31 is a message for husbands, for men. And it's a message that says you have to see your wife as excellent. You have to tell her that she is excellent. You need to treat her as she is excellent. And you might say, well, yeah, but my wife is not like this. <laughs> if, if my wife was like this, I would definitely tell her she's excellent, but no, she's not like this. We fail so often as husbands, men, because we have in mind a picture of what excellence is. Now, I wanna, there is a third part to this that will really tie, hopefully tie this up, but we are not supposed to wait upon someone doing certain things, but rather we're supposed to be expressive of what 
we think of our wives to be as an excellent wife. Look at verses 28 and 29. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. We have a role to play. Our role is that we must see and encourage and exhort our wives because she is excellent. I love the way Pastor Ray Ortland puts it. He says this, God wants to see your wife become more and more capable because of your influence in her life. And he wants to hear you and your kids cheering her on all the way. I do think so often that we as men and as husbands, we do falter and fail because we see perhaps what we think of as a foible, a flaw in our wives. We automatically assume, well, if they just did this, then everything would be better. But it's their fault. In actuality, we go back to the garden, and all we need to remember is that God called out to Adam, even though Eve is the one who took the fruit and said, Adam, where are you? Do you see that you're responsible for your wife? And if your wife were to sin, And if your children were to completely rebel against God, who is going to be held responsible? Yes, everyone is individually responsible. But Adam, you are ultimately responsible. Now that might seem unfair, but that's God's design for the family. And when the father or husband waits and says, well, I'm not going to act and be gracious and kind and loving and deem my wife as excellent until she proves herself, then we have failed to see the very idea of how God has structured the family based on who he is, his character, his nature. And so the way that I am and how I view my wife and what I say to her significantly impacts even how she views herself, her family, the world, others. In other words, husbands, you are called to regularly encourage uplift, praise your wife in front of your children. If you are regularly speaking critique, little jabs, and all of us, I think, husbands, were probably guilty of this to some extent, where we sort of undercut our wives in front of our children. Or maybe we're so regularly having conflict in front of our children that they hear only just these ways in which our wives fall short. And is it any wonder then that our children have a lesser view, not just of their mother, but also of you? It actually is self-destructive. You are truly shooting yourself in the foot when you, husband, are critiquing your wife in front of your children. And if regularly your mouth is used to tear down rather than to uplift, to encourage, to say, this is an excellent woman who is your mother, who is my wife. Now, does that mean that they're perfect? No, absolutely not. Do they falter and fail? Yes. But we know that this is what God is shaping them to be. This is who they are. And you'll see that coming soon. So you have to regularly do this. Now, some of you might say, but I'm I'm not verbal. I don't talk that much. In fact, it's uncomfortable and weird for me to even praise anyone, let alone my wife. We still have to do it anyway. You must do it. You need to heed God's word. You need to obey and trust him. You need to trust him. 
that by doing so, you will actually lead others and lead your family to have a high view of your wife and mother to the point where they actually see someone beautiful. So, men, we are sinners, and yet God sees us as sons because of Jesus. We are righteous in Jesus because he makes us righteous by his shed blood. If that is the sort of the picture of who we are in Christ as sons and as in Christ as sons of God, then how much more we're called to have that same view of seeing our wives, even though they fall short and falter, still as God's daughters, bought by the blood of Christ. This is the husband, the complement of an excellent woman. Thirdly, the completeness of an excellent woman. Again, Proverbs 31 might just seem discouraging to some of you women. You might think, I, I, can't, I don't come close to doing that. It's not who I am. I mean, who can find such a person? Again, that's verse 10, the very rhetorical question that sort of defines the whole chapter, right? So is God setting women up for failure? No different than God saying, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The ideal is there. Are we called to be perfect? Yes. Are you women called to, in some way, depict all of these qualities? Yes. But the reality is that we can't be perfect. We won't be. The completeness of the excellent woman does not come about by your strength and effort. The harder you try, the more you'll see your failure in it. The completeness of an excellent woman does not come about by finding the right man. That, that's a fallacy. And I think anyone who's married knows this to be true. You, if you think, okay, when I marry Mr. Right, all my lacking, all my loneliness, all my incompleteness, gone forever, because he's, he's that one. And then you marry him and you realize, why do I still feel incomplete, lacking, and lonely. Why do we still feel this way? And the reason is because no man can ever be the person, the man, who actually makes you excellent. It's just not possible, except for one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He is the one who absolutely makes you excellent. Because left on your own, you will falter and fail. All of these qualities it's just, you just can't do it. But he completes it for you. He is the one. We see this in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, where the Apostle Paul compares marriage to Christ's relationship to the church. And a lot of people misunderstand this passage because they think the primary message that Paul is giving is towards the husband and the wife and the marriage relationship. But in actuality, the primary relationship is not marriage but it's Christ's love for the church. And marriage is a shadow of Christ's love for the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave him up, himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Ladies, you're all like us, the church. 
the assumption is that we are not excellent. If you look at this verse, you, you see that the church, because Christ is going to one day present the bride pure and spotless, that means that prior, there was a time where the bride was not pure and spotless. It was, the bride was dirty. The bride was disfigured, perverted. But then Christ comes along and presents her pure and spotless. So that assumption is there even in Proverbs 31, is that you're not perfect. You do falter and fail. You do sin. You do fall short of God's glory. You do fall short of other people's glory, of your own glory. And so you need someone who's going to come along and perfect you and make you this excellent woman that Proverbs 31 is speaking of. And that someone is not a husband, but it is God himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And that someone paid a price. As the Apostle Paul says, your body, your life is not your own. You have been bought with a price. Your excellence is not possible, but because of the price paid, it is possible. And because of that price paid, you can now strive in joy for excellence. So can you achieve perfect excellence? No. Can you actually strive joyously and delightfully to care for your family, to do all that you can joyously and in freedom? Yes. Will you achieve it perfectly? No. But in Christ, you are perfected already. You are excellent already. You don't need a husband, the world, the marketplace, your neighbors, your children to tell you that you're special. You are special already. Jesus gave everything so that you would be guaranteed to be special. And that frees you. So for those of you, for example, who are single or divorced or widowed, um, this is a... You don't have to read Proverbs 31 as, well, what do I do? I don't have a husband. Proverbs 31 is just pointing towards Ephesians 5 and the rest of the New Testament that shows there is one who is perfect, who makes you excellent, and it's not based on a husband. It's on, not that Jesus is ever our husband, literally, but in a spiritual sense, in a sense that he completes, he, he gives us worth and value, he protects and provides. He does everything that a husband's supposed to do perfectly. And Jesus is that for you, whether you are married, single, divorced, widowed. This message is for you, woman, sister, student, girl, this is yours, is that Christ's blood has been shed. And so therefore, Psalm 46 says, cease striving. Know that he is God. Stop striving so hard to be excellent in yourself, in your own power. But instead, know that God is the one who's done it for you. I love then this, and I, I know so many of you have heard this verse, Verse 30 of Proverbs 31, charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but the woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. If you make your personality or your articulate words, your intelligence, your cunning, your youthfulness, your beautiful face, your body, 
So many women struggle in all of these areas of finding their worth and value in one of these places. Spend a lot of money on it, a lot of time, a lot of time watching YouTube videos on you know how to just perfect yourself. But if you place your hope in that, you will find eventually beauty is, it's, it fades, it's in vain. It doesn't last. Not earthly beauty, not the way because the world's standard is so poor in understanding beauty. It is possible for a woman to be completely grayed, to be wrinkled, to be hunched over, to be dealing with all sorts of physiological ailments, no longer in this world having the standard of beauty, but to be incredibly beautiful. And one thing is for certain is that that beauty will far outshine your years on this world because we're talking about eternal beauty. That will never fade. And it will be something that you will one day say, I, am, I know I'm beautiful. May it be now because what you see is Christ's beauty in you. And that beauty lasts forever. Charm is deceitful, meaning personality, your own wit, your own strength. What happens when dementia hits? What happens when perhaps Alzheimer's comes? Does that mean that you are worthless? You're a nobody? No, you are beautiful because God has made you beautiful. This is why we have to just define and and change to what God sees as reality for us. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, you are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh, so many of you are striving so hard to be loved, cherished, to be thought of as special, beautiful, based on what you do for a living, proving that if you work a certain get certain degrees or have a certain career path or, or if you're excellent in the home or if you're a great chef and a great cook or you have to be literally have be super craft woman or you know, every, you're making all your clothing and you're trying to do everything and you think, if I just get there or I have to look physically beautiful, everything will be wonderful. It's a lie. You are already beautiful in Christ. You are but you have to remember that. You have to believe it to be true. And when you do, then as an outflow, as a fruit, you will pursue excellence in all areas. And you won't be influenced by what other people say. It'll just be out of the joy of your heart. And that's when there's a lot of satisfaction and joy. You've been bought with a price. Never forget that. May that be your vision. Be thou my vision, O Lord. Be the center of my life. Change the way that I see, O oh Lord. My vision is poor. Be thou my vision. Help me to see myself how you see me. When that happens, you get rest and joy and excitement to live this life in faith. Let me pray for us. Pray for you. Father, I do lift up to you um, the women of our church, my dear sisters, for those who have trusted in Christ, and may they know, O oh Lord, that Jesus, your shed blood, is what makes these women excellent. 
if they pursue it in any other way, if they try to find it in their physical features or in their careers or in their households, in their homemaking, they were they will find only discouragement. They will always fail to, uh, falter and fail, and it will be hard. But it is when they really see that they are special because, Jesus, you paid a price for them so that they are now daughters of the living God. They are royalty. And when you see them, you see, oh God, you see this excellent daughter because it is your son's blood that covers them. Give them that vision, oh Lord. Protect them from the enemy's schemes that tries to deceive and to distort, to twist, to make them feel miserable about themselves or about the world. But may they also have a right understanding of the depth of their sinfulness their poverty in spirit, and of their need for Christ. For those who have never trusted in you, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would free them to experience the relief and the rest that comes in knowing Christ. And may they turn to you. May they be born again. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.